For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and we've gone all international this week. I'm with Spike's Deputy Editor, Tom Slater in New York. Hello, hello. Also joining us down the line from Holland is Spiked Editor, Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Today on the podcast, we discuss the allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. I speak to journalist Michael Tracy about the Democrats and the Trump administration. And finally, we ask, what's the point of the Lib Dems? But first... Brendan's got a brand new podcast coming out this Sunday. Brendan, could you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so my new podcast is launched this Sunday, 23rd of September. It's called The Brendan O'Neill Show, and it's going to be every month. And every month I'll be joined by someone who I think is interesting or important or who in some way is taking a stand against the bad drift of politics uh, that's taken place in recent years. Um, and I'll sit down with them, we'll have a conversation, we'll talk about big ideas, the bad ideas, try to come up with some solutions to the problems that um, Western society is facing today. And the first guest uh, who goes out this Sunday, 23rd of September, is Lionel Shriver, obviously super famous novelist, and she has emerged as something of a cultural and political rebel in recent years. And we have a really good conversation about identity politics and how it threatens artistic freedom, about the politics of race, the politics of transgenderism, the evils of censorship. So I think spiked readers and spiked podcast listeners will really like it. So I hope they tune in on Sunday and then also subscribe to the podcast so they don't miss an episode. That sounds brilliant. So that's the Brendan O'Neill show out this Sunday with Lionel Shriver. Subscribe and you won't miss it. On the nomination of Mr. Chairman Brett Kavanaugh, Mr. Chairman, to serve as Associate Justice, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to be recognized for a question before we proceed. We cannot continue the victimization and the smearing, smearing of someone like Dr. Ford. And you know what? She is under no obligation to participate. I think the nomination should be withdrawn. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has been accused of sexual assault. Christine Blase Ford says that Kavanaugh attacked her when they were teenagers. Democrats have called for an FBI investigation and for a delay to Kavanaugh's confirmation vote. Tom, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's actually turned into a pretty grim spectacle. Now, the allegations themselves are obviously incredibly serious, should be taken seriously. Christine Blasey Ford is alleging that when she was 15 and when Brett Kavanaugh was 17, they're at this party, he was drunk, he got on top of her, tried to assault her, that there was a friend there that who, and it only really ended when this friend of Kavanaugh's kind of jumped on top of them. Um, she later disclosed this to a therapist and then to her husband around 2012. And then up this year, as he was nominated by Trump to the US Supreme Court, she put in this anonymous tip to the Washington Post and to a congresswoman, which eventually made its way up to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And kind of now the rest is sort of history. Now, what I think is most striking about all of this is how quickly it's kind of been weaponized to the ends of trying to 
scupper this confirmation process. And whilst, of course, it's fair to say that these allegations should be taken seriously, just by the same token that none of us were in that room 36 years ago, none of us really know what happened. At the same time, none of us can really say that this is credible and this definitely did happen. But that's exactly what various Democrats have been doing, various commentators who have effectively been saying that they believe Blasey Ford. And I think it just speaks to a moment that we're in right now, which post Me Too movement, but even beforehand, where accusations alone can really effectively end someone's career. And I think just because this is happening at the highest levels of the American judiciary doesn't mean that it won't set a pretty dangerous precedent if, again, an allegation based on, even though this is tough to say, a he said, she said that is almost 40 years old um, can suddenly derail this process. I think it's a little bit worrying. Yeah, I think it really points to the politicisation of sexual assault allegations, which have now become a weapon in the armory of people who want to get one over on their political opponents, in this case, Democrats who want to get one over on Trump and, and weaken his pick for the court. Um, I, I think Tom's right that this these are very serious allegations. And in a way, that's what makes this spectacle so uh, horrible, because what we're seeing is a very serious accusation being used to um, you know, quite cynical political ends. And, and the fact of the matter is that this would be thrown out of a court of law entirely on the basis that it happened so long ago, uh, 36 years ago, for uh, he said, she says um, event like this. It would just not stand up in any court of law in the land. And therefore, I think it should also be thrown out of the court of public opinion, because otherwise it is just speculation, it is just gossip, it is just one person's word against another. And there's really nothing we can do about that, aside from, I think, taking the side of the person who claims his innocence, because that is the civilised thing to do. One thing, um, I don't know if you saw this, but CNN have unearthed a clip of Kavanaugh joking in 2015, where he says, you know, what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep referring to his teenage years. And this has kind of been presented as almost as evidence that there are parts of his life that he'd rather not come out. I, I think all of the people who are coming out and saying that they believe her, that there's kind of credible evidence here, um, have really got to own up to the fact that they know nothing more than any of the rest of us do. So the amount of evidence that there is, such as there is, comes down to the fact that um, she met a therapist or she went through therapy in 2012, disclosed the fact that this attack had happened. She later told her husband and that it was Brett Kavanaugh, according to her account, and that later on down the process, um, after she'd made this disclosure anonymously, she took advice from a lawyer who gave her a polygraph test, um, which she passed. But nevertheless, anyone who knows anything about polygraph tests knows that those aren't necessarily particularly reliable. Um, and so you've had this pretty grim attempt to kind of pick out really small threadbare pieces of like contextual evidence to try and damn Kavanaugh. And so not only is there this clip, as you refer to Fraser, but also the fact that the um, other person who was alleged to be in the room, Mark Judge, um, Kavanaugh's kind of childhood friend, he wrote, he happened to write a book about being a kind of young drunk. Um, he's made some kind of contrarian comments over the years about how women like to be led in the bedroom, those kinds of things. That does not prove anything. And when you see someone like Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer stand up and say, I believe her, and I think most of the US believe her, we have to ask the question, how do you know? And the fact of the matter is they don't. Um, and whilst I think it's fair to say that we can't impute motives onto Blasey Ford herself, there's nothing to suggest that she herself is pursuing this to political ends. But it's quite clear that a lot of the people around her are. And I think they need to own up 
to what it is that they're doing here, frankly, because it is pretty grim. Of course, if, if they are exploiting this cynically, then the goal is to delay the nomination because we have the midterms coming up. There are a lot of Democrats who are optimistic that they will take the Senate and that would make you know Trump's picks for the Supreme Court a lot more more difficult. So there is a clear, as you say, not necessarily in what Blasey Ford is saying, but for the Democrats, there is a clear political motive to um, pursue this allegation. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's what's really interesting about this, I think, is a lot of Republicans and some right wing publications are making some pretty considered critiques of this kind of culture, this use of um, very old accusations of sexual misconduct to try and score points against your opponents. But of course, Republicans don't have a leg to stand on in this area because they have played the same game in recent months, uh, you know, against Democratic senators like Al Franken and a couple of others. They have really whipped up some of the accusations that were made against him in relation to, uh, uh, you know, a far more innocent uh, act. Um, something that was largely jokey and which was blown out of proportion. Um, and of course, Democrats have done it as well against uh, Roy Moore, who, against whom the accusations were far more serious. But I think what we've seen over the past um, year or more is that the, the, the dire impact of Me Too, the way in which Me Too has become the preferred method of punishing certain people or expelling certain people from society, or just having this kind of um, medieval style cleansing of institutions to get rid of all the people you don't like. That process has spread from Hollywood into the art world, into the theatre world, into journalism, and inevitably into politics. And it's increasingly become the way through which you wound your political opponents. And it's such a destructive, dangerous game to play. I think it completely undermines politics because it becomes all about salacious rumors and suggestions and accusations rather than substance. And it undermines the uh, seriousness of sexual assault because that simply becomes a tool for scoring points. And I think it just creates a pretty poisonous McCarthyite culture where everyone's fearing the point of the finger. So if, that, if it was bad enough that this was happening in Hollywood, it's far worse that it's happening in politics, which should surely be the one public sphere where you expect reasoned, substantial discussion. And just to chime in with Brendan quickly, I think there is a hell of a lot of hypocrisy in this discussion. Of course, there is. I mean, if you think about the kind of original Me Too movement, the first people to weaponize it tended to be people on the right. You know, it was taking down Harvey Weinstein. It was these Hillary Clinton supporters who posed as great warriors for women's rights and then turned out to be absolute scumbags. They were very much the ones who were weaponizing it. And then if you think about someone like Donald Trump... <laughs> who has been um, not only he's been slightly more kind of, dare I say kind of gentle in his discussion of this particular case but you know previously earlier this year he tweeted out about how what happened to due process um, talking about lives are being shattered and destroyed by mere allegations referencing two aides of his who had been accused of domestic abuse but of course in 1989 he put ads, full page ads in New York newspapers calling for the death penalty effectively mm. for the Central Park Five. Mm. But nevertheless, the fact that both sides play this game, both now and throughout history, is just more reason to go back to first principles about, as Brendan says, mm. the presumption of innocence in due process. And of course, this is not even the only major Me Too story this week. We've had the New York Review of Books editor, uh, Ian Baruma, has been ousted from his job for publishing an essay by someone who was cleared of sexual assault, which is the Canadian broadcaster, Gian Gameshi. The power of Me Too seems to be, you know, there seems to be kind of no end to it. 
Yeah, I think the the Ian Baruma story is is the worst Me Too incident yet because it really demonstrates that you can't even raise critical questions about this movement. You can't um, confront it. You can't shine the light of reason on it. You can't have any kind of civilized, nuanced discussion about it without being accused of, you know, defaming the victims and insulting the victims. And, you know, you must get out of polite society for even raising these questions. Uh, so, you know, not only will you be cast out into the social wilderness if you touch someone's knee or sexually harass someone or verbally abuse a woman, You'll also be cast out of, in this case, New York's literary circles if you simply commission an essay uh, by someone who has been accused of something but then acquitted and who raises critical questions about the movement in his essay. I think if even someone of Ian Baruma's intellectual stature can be brought down low by this climate, then really no one is safe. So I think if you add up the Kavanaugh case and the Baruma case, what we can really see is how in, in politics and serious cultural discussion, those two very important areas of life have now been infected by the Me Too witch hunt. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Up next, the state of the parties before the midterms. Is there too much hype about the Democrats' new socialist wing? Are the Democrats poised to sweep the board at the midterms? And will the apparent disarray of the Trump White House cost him any support? I spoke to journalist Michael Tracy over Skype to get his view. First of all, I asked what happened in last week's Democratic primaries in New York. Well, Andrew Cuomo, the incumbent governor, won a third term by a resounding margin over Cynthia Nixon, who is best known, apparently, for her starring role in a television series that I had never actually watched. So I missed a lot of inside jokes and references as to what her character Miranda supposedly did on Sex and the City. Um, So there was a whole dimension of the race that I apparently was not attuned to. Nevertheless... um, Although she ginned up a lot of excitement among a certain set that I would characterize as the kind of emerging New York City-centered intelligentsia, um, not surprisingly, that it didn't really transfer into a broader electoral performance statewide. Um, so she was trounced in strongholds where basically the party machinery dominates. And it was interesting to me, mostly in that I couldn't recall a electoral outcome since Trump won the presidential election in which there was such a discrepancy between the sentiment that I observed on my Twitter feed and the sentiment that was apparently expressed by voters. So Cuomo was the subject of overwhelming scorn, I would say, among left-wing Twitter you know, opinionators. And uh, among journalists, among basically everybody, or so it seemed. And then, of course, that impression was just brazenly dispelled by an electoral outcome where he won the, the Democratic primary electorate by over 30 points. As you said, there's been a lot of excitement around this kind of new progressive democratic socialist movement, the DSA. But a lot of that seems to come from kind of hipsters, students, media types. 
rather than working class people, the kind of people that you would expect a socialist movement to represent. Is that a problem for this wing of the party? Yeah, I think this is a longstanding problem, and it's only going to be addressed as the socialists are able to infiltrate the party machinery. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has now become like a sort of viral superstar because she won a, a congressional primary. But one thing Andrew Cuomo pointed out was that he won the district that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will now represent in Congress by an overwhelming margin. So on paper, those two outcomes don't seem quite congruous. I think that owes to the fact that there is this energized minority who want a fundamental change in the party's direction. So those could be those would consist of you know these DSA people who are you know uh, willing to engage with the Democratic Party. They would just maybe people who are just kind of more broadly under the quote progressive banner who uh, you know were were mobilized by Bernie Sanders. So those are that is an active and significant wing. But it's important to acknowledge that they are a minority. And the reason that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won is because she did well with high information voters who uh, who would know the uh, obscure schedule of New York state primary elections because for no rational reason New York state holds its congressional and state primaries on different dates and different months. You, in, in certain low turnout races such as that, yes, the the highly ideological energized cohort within the party can make a tangible electoral difference. But all bets are off when you have a much higher turnout contest like like the Cuomo primary from, from last week. It actually kind of raised the issue of who is the kind of Cuomo, quote, normie voter? <laughs> because if you, if you live on Twitter, as so many people in political journalism do, mm. you get the sense that the average like resistance – person is you know maybe like an ideological socialist who read a couple of uh, books on theory and who you know <laughs> maybe has a has a medium page but actually the, the the typical person who is mobilized by the national political environment and is like vaguely under the banner of what you might call the anti-trump resistance meeting some something to do with their distaste for the national political environment presently has impelled them to vote those people are totally not in the same category <laughs> You know, for all the hype about how energized the insurgent wing of the Democratic Party supposedly is, only two incumbents in the entire House of Representatives were unseated by challengers. Zero Democratic senators were unseated uh, were unseated in terms of incumbents, and zero incumbent Democratic governors were unseated. And contrast that in from with, for example, 2010 when you had the so-called Tea Party wave in the Republican Party. The incumbents this year have been much on much firmer ground uh, in the Democratic Party. So, uh, as interesting as it is for you know people writing think pieces to suppose that there's this great you know swirl of ideological ferment in, in the in the Democratic Party, for the most part, the the ideology is pretty static. And in terms of the divide you spoke about between expectations on Twitter and actual electoral outcomes, I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately about a blue wave at the upcoming midterm, this idea that in the age of Trump, the Democrats are poised to sweep the board. Is that kind of talk premature? Are the Democrats really in a position to make sweeping gains? I think yes and no. Um, so there is 
reason to believe that there will be a blue wave of some sort. You know, b- wave is kind of a facile metaphor for yeah. it, but there's reason to believe that again segments of the Democratic or elect- electorate are energized such that they should be presumed to have a sizable advantage over Republicans. I think in suburban districts where Trump's popularity is is lower than than average, Democrats are going to be doing well. But that, there's sort of an irony in that as well because those are the districts that Hillary Clinton targeted in 2016 because she felt that this kind of like phantom moderate Republican was going to help you know, put her over the edge. Um, and it turned out that that was really not a crucial constituency. Uh, but you know, in terms of but the, but the electorate for midterms is somewhat different. So I mean, if you look at the New York State gubernatorial primary four years ago, Cuomo also ran against an insurgent challenger, Zephyr Teachout, who this year ran for attorney general and lost both times. But the number of votes cast compared to 2014, Cuomo I think received triple the votes. So there was a much greater turnout overall among Democrats, who who I think. For, in large part, just wanted to make a statement purely by voting. So is that, is that an indication that they are going to turn out at similar rates in November? I think, yeah, that, that can, be, can be understood to be an indication of it. Recently, there seems to be a lot coming out to suggest that the Trump administration is in, is in disarray, whether it's the New York Times op-ed written by a Trump staffer who claimed themselves to be restraining Trump, curtailing his worst instincts. Or the recent book by Bob Woodward, Fear, which details an administration in chaos with you know Trump with the attention span of a of a gnat. But are these revelations likely to have an impact on the voters? And is Trump really as weak as these stories suggest? For one, if you look at that New York Times op-ed, the criticisms that were raised within that op-ed are sort of of a piece with the mainline conservatives criticism of Trump that has been hurled at him for now three plus years and never made much headway with the actual electorate. So Trump steamrolled everybody who made that kind of criticism. A coup is sort of a melodramatic way of putting it, but there are definitely people who have private reservations about Trump who are subtly uh, attempting to thwart his his agenda in ways that they deem – you know, worthy. It's a way for them to exact revenge on Trump in a way because now you have the actual staff of his administration trying to, in an underhanded fashion, force him to, to cohere to the, the, the model of Republican politics that Trump supposedly defeated in 2016. Um, so it's, it's actually quite anti-democratic if you look at it in that sense. But I don't think there's going to any particular voter is moved by the New York Times op-ed, you know. There's that that doesn't have a huge electoral ramification. It's it more more has a ramification in terms of the inside baseball of how the administration is run. And and you know, in terms of the Woodward book, it's sort of funny I'm writing about this now and just thinking about how much of a furor that caused like a week ago and now it almost seems like a distant memory and it's only been a couple of days. And I think it's a probably kind of an apt metaphor for Woodward's work more broadly. It creates this sort of like spasm of excitement for a couple of days, like a sugar high, but then you crash and it's like quickly forgotten and you almost wonder like what all the fuss was about. I wouldn't be surprised if like in two weeks, Woodward's books are already in the bargain bin. <laughs> they don't have a lot of staying power because he sort of studiously declines to actually engage in any real analysis. He's kind of popularized this notion that you also saw – 
in a way in the New York Times op-ed that there are these adults in the room who are reining Trump in and kind of curtailing his worst impulses. And if you actually dig down into what those worst impulses, quote-unquote, supposedly are, they invariably are these trade and foreign policy heterodoxies. The most telling example to me on that front was how if you read his book, which I sadly have, the way that the Af- Trump's deliberation over Afghanistan is depicted is that you know Trump has this wild idea that maybe he would like to get get the troops out of Afghanistan after 17 years, <laughs> and then the sober and serious and sane adults come in and kind of put their their foot on the on the brake uh, on the brake pedal and convince Trump that that's not the right way to go. And thank God that there those adults are there to rein him in. And it's just like. Well, I mean, maybe if Woodward had like a like a tad of analytical rigor about him, he could have said to himself, "Okay, maybe it's worth parsing out whether that actually is an adult instinct, or maybe uh, maybe that instinct to actually compel Trump to remain engaged in a seventeen-year-old conflict is the one that needs to be reined in." So maybe there's like some like sort of sort of weird inversion going on here, um, but. Anyway, that's, that's sort of the insidious effect, I think, of Woodward's book that at least was apparent for the handful of days when it still seemed relevant, but I think we're beyond that. If you're enjoying the Spike podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Up next, the Lib Dems. Years of economic pain justified by the exotic spreasum of leaving the European Union. Now, you may not have noticed, but the Liberal Democrats had their conference this week. Highlights included a speech from Remain campaigner Gina Miller, where she said that she was not a Lib Dem, and the leader's speech from Vince Cable, where he fluffed his much-trailed line that Brexit was an erotic spasm, or exotic spreasum in his words. Brendan, what did you make of uh, this week's conference? I think it just shows how utterly pathetic the Lib Dems are. I mean, in some ways, it's quite funny what's happened to them because, you, you know, they really position themselves as the people who will fight against Brexit. And they actually thought that would be a popular way to position themselves. You know, we will be the party of the, the reactionary sections of the middle classes who want to rage against the biggest democratic vote in British history. I mean, that is not a good selling point. So I think their, their fall, their downward spiral, is actually something that Democrats among us probably should have a little chuckle at and also celebrate. I really think there's an argument for taking the Lib Dems to the Trading Standards Authority because neither of the words in their name make any sense. They're not liberal anymore. They don't take a liberal position on many, many issues. Uh, and they're certainly not Democrats. In fact, they're anti-Democrats. So th- this is an illiberal and anti-Democratic party masquerading as a liberal Democratic one. So I think actually their misfortunes are something that we should, you know, be quite happy about. Now, I thought what was really hilarious about the erotic spasm or exotic spasm comment was not just the fact that he fluffed it. It just... It- for me, it just kind of showed how desperate the Lib Dems were. I mean, first of all, it shows that, as Brendan says, they really misjudged the electorate in such a fundamental way. I mean, that they you know, came out post-Brexit as we're going to be the party of the 48%. But it turns out that the 48% are not like them, snobby metropolitans who rage against people who disagree with them. You know, it's turned out that that constituency they were trying to capture was actually pretty tiny. But I also think that that comment in particular really shows up how much they misunderstand 
what Brexit was and is. You know, the comment is almost alluding to this idea that Brexit was just this kind of putsch by Tory Brexiteers. They'd much rather see it as, in his kind of metaphor, kind of rumbling in Jacob Rees-Mogg's loins and actually a kind of like rumbling of dissatisfaction in the country and a desire for a closer politics. Um, And I think fundamentally it's just shown that the Lib Dems are now a busted flush because they can't even capitalise um, on the kind of metropolitan constituencies who did vote remain. And I think also it's worth saying that despite the fact that that comment and the tenor of a lot of the remainder discussion at the moment is this idea that Brexit was kind of visceral, unthinking, and that's why potentially we might change our minds about it. If anyone's been acting in a kind of, vis- in a kind of visceral, spasmodic <laughs> nature, it's been people like Vince Cable, it's been people like Gina Miller, who said she was physically sick after the Brexit vote. It's people like Andrew Adonis, the former Labour Lord turned anti-Brexit campaigner, who is now going around claiming that the BBC is the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation. So I think, yes, out of touch doesn't quite capture it in their case. I think actually, you know, it's very useful for those of us who actually believe in Brexit and believe in democracy, because because if this is the best that the reactionary Remainer elite have got going for them, then we're in a pretty good position. You know, if this is the opposition, I think we should have a little spring in our step going ahead, because <laughs> if we have confidence about us, they're pretty easily defeated. No, and I think just finally, I think the only thing is that, that there's always a bit of a danger with the Lib Dems are concerned that they've just become a kind of foil for us Brexiteers on some level because they're so outlandish, they're so explicitly elitist and they're also so hopeless, you know, now as, as Brendan points out. But I think in many respects, I think part of the problem right now is the fact that in many respects the political class doesn't need the Lib Dems to try and water down Brexit or to thwart it. They don't need these kind of unabashed elitists just kind of screeching at the sidelines. If anything, that probably messes things up a little bit. And as we've seen, you know, panning out over the last couple of weeks, it's it's quite clear that the two main parties are doing a pretty good job of playing a much more duplicitous game in relation to this. Um, but nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that I think the Lib Dems demise does show how little constituency there is for this kind of Brexit FBP hollering type section of society Uh, no matter what happens it's quite clear that that's definitely not what the 48% is all about was an erotic spasm or erotic exotic (laughs) I fucked it (laughs) I can't even say it wrong you've been listening to the Spike podcast we'll be back next week with more don't forget the Brendan O'Neill show starts this Sunday so get subscribing. And of course, for your daily dose of Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 